Lord, this morning, open us up to hear your word to us today. Speak to us. Give us understanding that we might become your flourishing disciples, bringing your love and your grace to the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we're looking at today is taken from Mark 7, and beginning at the first verse, we read these words. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with their hands that were defiled and unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial cleansing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Now, I'm going to stop there just for a minute. Um, I need to let you know, I really don't find the passage that we're looking at today hard to understand. My real problem is how to apply it today. John Stott begins his sermon on this passage by making the statement that the biggest question facing the church today is will we follow Jesus when it's unpopular or politically incorrect or inconvenient? Or to put the question maybe another way, will we let the word of God form the foundation of our beliefs and our priorities and our identities? Or will we let our culture tell us what's good and bad and important and who we are? Now, in, in many ways, I believe that the Pharisees get a, a bad rap in Scripture. In actuality, they were the guardians of the faith. You see, the Jews were to be set apart. They weren't to blend in. They were to live as God showed them to live, modeling God's heart and his intentions for life. In fact, in Genesis 12, after spending 11 chapters showing the growth of sin and evil in the world, such that in Genesis 6-5 we read that the inclinations and the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your culture, your way of life. I want you to leave your people. All that is familiar to you. I want you to leave your family, all that you hold dear, and I want you to go to the land that I am going to show you. And when Jesus calls the first disciples, what is he calling? He says, drop your nets. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And let me ask you, do you remember when the Ten Commandments were given? Do you remember when God gave the law in the first place? They were given after the slaves had been let out of Egypt. It is as if God was saying, now that I have freed you, this is how you are to live in order to remain free. You see, the scriptures are given that we might know God, that we might know his power and his presence and his love and his mercy and his grace, that we might live in relationship with him, free of all that would bind us or enslave us, so that we would be free from the passions and the entanglements of sin. In many ways, the laws were, were signposts that called the Jewish people to be set apart, to be undefiled by the ways of the world. 
Tim Keller says it this way, the clean laws were there to teach something extremely important. God was saying, send us the same thing to the soul that dirt and disease and decay do to the body. It defiles the soul. It alienates. It stains. I mean, it builds walls between us and, and God, between us and other people, even walls within ourselves, yielding self-images that are enslaving, whether they be self-images that are inferior or self-images that feel superior. You see, the clean laws were meant to remind us that we are unclean. And our uncleanliness needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. I mean, that's a rather unpopular belief in today's world, where many people want to focus on the intrinsic goodness of humans rather than our need for cleansing. As signposts, these laws were meant to show us our need for the cross and forgiveness. And not just a one-time confession, but an ongoing evaluation of how we're living, resulting in lives of cleansing and freeing and thankfulness. Let's continue reading. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? Instead, eating their food of undefiled hands. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe other traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who cares or curses her father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Coburn, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother and thus nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Okay, the law of God is good. But we need to be cautious that we don't misapply it. I mean, that seems simple enough to understand. But over and over again throughout history, the church has misapplied it. I mean, even Martin Luther, for example, when he first became a Christian and entered into the monastery, he felt that his committing his whole life to God meant that the church came first, even before care for his father. His father protested. And as Luther grew and began to read scripture, he later had to confess that his father had been closer to what scripture taught than he had been. But that's just one example. Throughout history, we've had a tendency to use scripture to justify our actions, resulting in our breaking the law rather than keeping the laws. I mean, one example might be the way many of you scripture to, to justify slavery. But I'm sure we can come up with other examples too, especially with respect to our caring for the poor or for those who we call enemy or for those that we don't want to forgive. John Orberg, when discussing the Pharisees, quotes John Donne saying, 
In the first century, a disproportionate amount of the rabbinic attention was devoted to three areas of the law, the dietary laws, the Sabbath keeping, and circumcision. This was in spite of the fact that the rabbis would not have claimed these as the central aspects of God's will for humanity. They knew that the essence of the law was the Shema, the loving of God with heart and soul and strength. So why the relentless focus on the laws of circumcision and, and the Sabbath and diet? The answer, Dunn says, involves identity markers or boundaries. All groups of human beings have a tendency to be exclusive. They want to know who is in and who is out. So they adopt identity markers, visible practices of dress or vocabulary or behavior that serve to distinguish who is in the inside of the group from those who are on the outside. But the identity markers that will proclaim the authenticity of the people of God were to be a circumcised heart and a diet of justice and love. Then people would not simply try to do right things. They'd be the kind of persons who want to do the right things. They would be clean inside. John Orper confesses, there's a self-righteousness in me that does not want to die. There's something inside of me that's not bothered when others are excluded, but that actually wants others to be excluded, that feels more special when I'm on the inside and someone else is not. There's something in me, even when I was young, that enjoyed looking at that flannel board in Sunday school and thinking about how much wiser and more loved by God than I was than those foolish, exclusive Pharisees. The boundary markers change from century to century, but they all reinforce a sense of superiority fed by the intent to exclude others. Wow, help. Do I have boundary markers that make me feel superior, that keep others out? What are the traditions that I have allowed to elapse, ellipse the law of God? You know, this past year, I have been um, leading a, a cohort for, for ECO, kind of a teaching cohort. And one of those units, we, we talked about how God is not just for us that he comes to be with us, but even that is not. He becomes one of us, doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. The challenge for us is to do the same. Rather than putting up boundary markers that make it hard for people to feel comfortable in church, our calling is not only to be for other people, but to go out and be with others identifying so much with their needs and their struggles and their desires that we become one of them, standing in the gap, being a bridge to the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And thus living out the law, so to speak, as found in Philippians 2, where Jesus leaves all in obedience to God, takes on the appearance of a human being and dies our death in order that we might know God. Wow, how are we doing? Who is God calling us to go out to? 
and become one of, even if it means dying to ourselves. Back to Tim Keller. You know, in reflecting on this passage, he says that we must be careful to not use this passage to throw out the authority of Scripture, but to submit to its authority. He says that in quoting Isaiah 29, Jesus is saying that the purpose of the Bible is not formal compliance. God's desire is for our heart. God is saying, you are far from me and I want to be close to you. If you look at obeying the Bible, if you add all these rules and regulations to the Bible that show that you think that the purpose of the Bible is so you can feel that you're obedient and righteous, so you can say, oh God, you have to bless me now. You have to answer my prayers because I'm living such a good life. If that's you, then you completely miss the purpose of the Bible, Keller says. God is saying, I want you to obey the Bible because I want intimacy with you. See, the scriptures were not given that we might beat others over the head or, or set up boundaries markers showing who's in and who's out. The purpose of the scripture is so that we would fall in love with the person at the center knowing his heart and his priorities and his purposes, living freely now in a relationship with him and others and ourselves. You know, this last fall, or last spring, I guess it actually was, last spring, Dana Allen asked all the pastors in our presbytery to read a book called Saturate. Um, it, it's a great book. It's, it's one I would highly recommend to you, especially during this time of transition. The author brings up some spiritual truths that we all need to apply to our lives, as well as some very practical ways to live out the gospel as a faith community. And I stress community. We need to re-grasp that we are called to be a body, a community, working together to bring God's kingdom to the places where he gives us influence Again, we're not so much called to be individuals as much as a body of believers living out our faith and love. Now, that's probably a whole other sermon. Although I do think that that 20th century mantra, mantra of having a personal relationship with Jesus can easily become a tradition that highlights individuality over body life. But back to this sermon. One of the things that the author of Saturate asks is, is Jesus the only answer to your life? Wow. I mean, is Jesus the only explanation that people can give as to the who, what, why, and how of my life, my priorities, my way of doing things, my dreams and expectations? I mean, that's another way of asking, what's in your heart? How does your life reveal what is in your heart? Remember what John Ortberg said? The identity markers that will proclaim the authenticity of the people of God will be a circumcised heart and a diet of justice and love. Then people will not simply do the right things. They'll be the kind of persons who want to do the right things. They'll be clean on the inside. Let's finish reading this passage. Again, Jesus called the crowd and said to him, 
Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he said? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declares all, things, all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within you, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly or foolishness. All these things, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now that list is uh, pretty inclusive. But if we were honest, it's really pretty easy to find ourselves someplace in that list, isn't it? John Stott, reflecting on these 13 evils that are listed there, points out that the scope of evil is universal in nature. That the essence of evil is self-centeredness. And that the origin is inward. It's in the human heart. We will never solve the ills of the world short of changing all of our hearts. You see, Jesus takes the focus off himself when he says that all the law and the prophets can be summed up with the words, we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, neighbor, self, in that order. But sin puts it in the opposite order. You know, recently I, I found myself reading some devotions by the Alpha founder, Nikki Gumbel. In one of them, he mentions that the idols of our day are, are money, sex, and power. But that an idol can be anything that we worship by giving it more attention than God. In another devotion on the temptations of Jesus, which we heard a little bit about earlier, he mentioned them under three headings. The temptation of instant gratification, which he called the economic temptation. The testing of God, the religious temptation. And the temptation of wrong means, the political temptation. You see, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Essians and the Zealots and the Sadducees and the Heresies and Herodians were all political and religious groups who had beliefs as to what would bring about the promises of Messiah and what would make, bring about the promises of Scripture for God to bless into being. Each group at one time or another tried to get Jesus to side with them. But Jesus wouldn't get brought into the discussion. He wouldn't take a political side. He wouldn't give way to instant gratification or try to manipulate God. He simply sought God alone, giving God control, giving himself for others that others would come to know God. And so the question becomes, do we just throw out the law? Do we throw out Bible reading and tithing and worship and, and the spiritual discipline, so to speak? Paul says no. He says that the purpose of the law is to show us what is in our hearts, to show us our need for Jesus. The law is not meant to keep others out, 
but to help us see that we need a heart transplant. And the disciplines of the faith are meant to open us up to receive more of God's love, his presence and power in our lives, to enable us to be intimate with God, receiving his love and cleansing. You know, there's a second book that I would highly recommend. In fact, I'd actually recommend you read this one first. Okay, um, It's a book by Rebecca Pippard. It's called Stay Salt. Our world has changed. Our message must not now, I first read a book by Becky Pippard back in the late 70s or early 80s. Um, some of you are old enough to remember those days. Some of you were not even born at that time. Janae. <laughs> Becky at that time was working for InterVarsity, and she told a story about getting to know a, a young non-Christian couple who were living together, something that was definitely frowned upon in the 70s. She said she went out of her way to develop a relationship with this couple hoping to lead them to Jesus. She said the one thing that she did not talk about was their living condition situation. Her comment was she wanted them to come to know the love of Jesus and then let Jesus deal with any sin that might be in their lives. I mean, isn't that what Jesus modeled when he ate with tax collectors and, and women of questionable reputation? The book that I just read, Stay Salt, gives example after example of how to have conversations with people who wouldn't darken the door of our churches, helping them identify a need or a desire or a question they have, and then showing how Jesus can meet that. Conversations that don't produce boundary markers, but instead tear down walls and, and open folks up through just dropping a few morsels of salt to the riches and the favorableness of a life with Jesus. But to have these conversations, we need to be living a Jesus life. We need to go and be with and one of others. Our hearts need to be attractive in nature because of what we have found in Jesus, because we're living out his way of life. I mean, that's easier said than done. We all need a heart transplant. You know, this last Christmas, I was again captivated by Mary and Joseph. The angel comes to Mary and says, greetings, do not be afraid, you are highly favored. I love those words, you are highly favored. You know, we put, traditionally put Mary up on a, on a pedestal, seeing her as almost sinless, but she's just a 14-year-old girl from an out-of-the-way small village. What made her special was that she gave herself to the Lord's work. But that comes second. First, she's told, Mary, not Mary, this is where you're falling short. She said, Mary, do not be afraid. You are highly favored. Please, I believe that God wants you to hear loud and clear, each one of you, you are highly favored. Don't be afraid. You see, after that, the angel comes and says, Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And you're going to give birth to a son. In the Matthew account, we read, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. But the word for birth in the Greek is actually the word Genesis. This is how the creation, the beginning of Jesus took place. See, Matthew's taking us back to Genesis 1 where the Holy Spirit's hovering over the water and God speaks 
the world into creation. What Matthew wants us to see is that the Holy Spirit is again hovering over and bringing about a new creation into the lives of people who, like Joseph, will simply get up and trust and obey, leaving the rest to God. Now, I got to tell you, I love Joseph. Do you know that he never speaks in the Bible? I mean, he really has a minor role, and yet it's kind of huge. And in this, I believe there's a truth for every one of us. You see, our society tells us that we need to have goals and to be productive and to accomplish things, and all that's good. But if we let our commitment to being productive ellipse the ways and things of God. You know, we are created for work, but not to create kingdoms for ourselves out of our work. Our work is not meant to enable us to become self-reliant, finding security in our bank accounts. Paul tells us that our work is so that we might have, be able to have something so we can help other people who have needs. Joseph gives up control. He gives up his right to his own self-determination. And he simply followed the leadings of God. And a new beginning was created by the Holy Spirit. Will we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in our hearts? Will we let the scriptures, with the work of the scripture, change our hearts, birthing more of Jesus inside of us? I mean, that's a challenge for all of us. I got to tell you, I understand this passage. My problem is honestly applying it, honestly asking, where am I like the Pharisees? Now, you all are going through a, a rather unique time here. Not only does this passage say that we all need to open up our lives and hearts to God, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what needs to be changed. But I would ask you, what traditions do you have as a church that maybe get in the way of you as a church becoming the body of Christ here in this city that God desires you to be? Are you willing to let go of your past and allow God to take you into the future? It's the only answer for your existence as a church. Jesus. By the way, and, and I'll close with this. Have you ever noticed that when we talk about sin, it's always singular and not plural? We, that's because the issue of sin is not the breaking of a bunch of rules. It's a choice that we make of choosing to do what we think is best rather than listening to God. And the law, it's also always in the singular pointing to lives, lives that are lived with a God heart. Remember what Jesus said? The law and the prophets can be summed up in love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your soul and your neighbor as yourself. Or as Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? That you go to church? That you tithe? That you're in a Bible study? That you obey a bunch of rules? No that you do justice, that you love mercy, that you walk humbly with God. Let me ask you, how's your heart? What, what traditions have you allowed to become boundary markers? Where do we misapply God's law? 
Have you heard Jesus say, do not be afraid? You're highly favored. Are you daily living minute by minute out of gratitude, out of a love relationship with the king of all creation? Will you join me in prayer? Take a minute and just ask God. God, is there something I need to change? What do you want me to hear today? Maybe you're here and you really don't know much about Jesus. Just ask him, Lord, open me up to your love. May I hear you say, I'm highly favored. Lord, thank you. Thanks for your forgiveness. Thank you for your life. Thank you that we can trust in you and just let go and let you. May we follow you and be set apart to serve you as we go into this world that so needs you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.